Hello and welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of lasting well-being. And if you've listened to before, welcome back. I'm joined today, as usual, by Dr. Rick Hansen. So, Dad, how are you doing today? I'm good, and I'm extremely interested in our guest today. Yeah, same. Absolutely. It's such a timely conversation. And today we're very, very pleased to welcome back our first repeat guest and kind of double repeat guest to the podcast, (laughs) one of the world's leading experts on trauma and the impact of traumatic experiences, particularly on children and young people, Dr. Bruce Perry. Dr. Perry is the Senior Fellow of the Child Trauma Academy based in Houston, Texas, and a professor at the Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern University in Chicago and the School of Allied Health at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. He's one of the world's leading experts on childhood trauma, and he's also the author of The Boy Who Was Raised as a Dog, which is probably the book that's had the largest impact on my personal understanding of these topics. So, Bruce, how are you doing? Thanks for doing this. Well, thanks for having me, Forrest. Good to see you, Rick. And I'm going to be honest, I'm well, but I'm tired. Yeah. Hmm. We were talking, our working group yesterday had a meeting on a Monday morning, and we were all talking about, here we are waking up sort of after the holiday break on a Monday morning after a weekend, and we're tired. This has been a a long experience, I think, for a lot of people. Yeah, no, I, I definitely have not gotten what I would describe as like an energized New Year's bump. Um, if anything, the holidays have been just like more exhausting for me personally. And I think anyone who's just like tracking the numbers with coronavirus right now, all the stuff that's going on socially and politically, it's a really exhausting time. And it's certainly a time where the work that you and your team are doing just like feels very, very present in the space in terms of people's lived experiences. And I'm sure we're going to talk about that a little bit today. But kind of before we get rolling, I just wanted to have a quick mention here to kind of come clean for our listeners which is this is actually the second time that we're recording this second conversation together. Unfortunately, we had like a minor tech disaster with our last recording, so we lost the audio for it. And Bruce graciously agreed to run it back here with us and record this conversation again. So again, Bruce, thanks for being gracious about that and doing that with us. It's my pleasure, actually. For me, it's just fun and energizing to have a conversation. So Mm -hmm. we can do this whenever you want. Ah, Thanks, man. Truly appreciate it. Yeah. Well, Bruce, I I wanted to circle back to and highlight the comment you just made there a moment ago. You as a physician, you as someone who works in healthcare, you talking about your colleagues of all kinds. And I I myself include, in addition to the chief of medicine, also the person pushing a broom at two in the morning down a hallway, all those people who I know are also included in your own mind and heart. And they do talk about it being exhausting and, and stress and fatigue and depletion is cumulative, right? It really adds up, as you well know. And so I, I want to first, actually, from my heart, as a human, an American, a citizen, a parent, and all the rest of that, thank you personally. And through you, all other people frontline dealing with all this stuff, paramedics, firefighters, the whole kit and caboodle, you know, the public safety healthcare system broadly. And second, I wonder if you could use that as maybe a segue to talk a little bit about the interaction of accumulating wear and tear that on any given moment is not traumatic, let's say, but gradually wears people down and is synergistic as well so that vulnerabilities get created and developed eventually that expose people to having, let's say, traumatic impacts from stressors that are difficult, but 
wouldn't have previously been, let's say, traumatic for them. And just the totality of that. During this year, in other words, what have you seen in your work? How has your work shifted at all? And how do you think about that interaction of acute stressors, including traumatic ones, interacting with chronic depletion and fatigue? That set of issues, Rick, is one of the most important not cognitive learnings, but I, th- I think a lot of people have been able to kind of intellectually talk about that. But I think the value of the experiences over this last year are that so many people are able to now emotionally connect with those concepts in ways that they couldn't do that before. So we used to talk, for example, about just trying to get somebody to imagine a child living in poverty and having food insecurity and having unemployment issues that percolate down into the kids, even though they're sort of the parents' focus, that that continuous tension, even though it's not, quote, traumatic, influences the way they're going to be able to sit in class and pay attention. And how hard it is for them to get through a day without being emotionally and physically exhausted. And then why they might blow up at lunch when somebody bumps into them the wrong way, as opposed to using their words and solving the problem like a mature 10-year-old. You know? And so all of the stuff that we talk about, I think the, one of the things that's been positive about this experience is that so many more people now understand on a different level what we're talking about. Paired with that is that I we've been learning about, again, another thing that you said, Rick, that What to a well-regulated person who gets a lot of sleep, doesn't have a lot of bandwidth sucked up every day, you know, worried about all kinds of other stuff, they're much more capable of being able to demonstrate what we call resilience. You know, when they're faced with a stressor, they can marshal the emotional and physical reserves, handle it, and kind of get back to their baseline. But if you're just on the very, you know, your, as people say, your last nerve and all of your bandwidth has been sucked up just trying to get through the day, and then you have a, even a moderate stressor, that can have the same impact on your brain as a sort of easy to understand, quote, trauma. And I think that that's something that is going to be really important for people to, again, remember and think about ways that we can incorporate that into the way we teach, the way we develop programs and practice. When you think about people, maybe including yourself, who are just worn to the bone, it would be wonderful if they could get help from the outside. But often systems, as you well know, are also worn to the bone. And so just as an individual, do you have any suggestions from your personal experience and or your knowledge as a physician of just some simple little things a person can do who's just worn to the bone right then and there in their own life to feel at least a little better, to prime the pump at least a little bit more? You know, there's a couple of things, and I think we touched on some of them the first time we talked, is that when you're in situations like this, you can really consume a lot of emotional and physical energy focusing on things that you have no control over. And I find, even though I know how important it is to sort of focus on the things that you can do and bring some control to those things and bring regulatory practices into the way you're living in the moment, you know, focus on your breathing, 
you know, if you don't know some of these regulatory strategies, see if you can learn some, because there's a lot of places to learn some of these things, because those can be tremendously helpful. But even when you know those things, the longer this goes on in this nonstop bombardment, it just taps you out. And so, again, what I keep telling folks is this, is that, listen, you know, to the degree that you can minimize unnecessarily provocative stressors, like watching eight news cycles, you know, you can get stirred up. It's important to understand what's going on in the world, but don't let it overwhelm you. It's always important to sort of think about what, what is in my control? I mean, I can control my breathing. I can control sometimes whether or not I just sit on the couch and channel surf or whether I, I get up and take a walk outside and look at the trees and just try to see something beautiful in the world. And again, you guys know this very, very well, that the power of the regulating power of nature, kind of the restoring power of the sights, the sounds, the smells, the rhythms of nature, those are very powerful things that can help us get more centered and better regulated. And I think that, again, getting help doing that, sort of being disciplined to kind of get out and do some of these things, I think can be helpful. Another one of the big keys is being connected to other people. You know, there'll be times when you're just sort of tapped out and then somebody you connect with has a little more energy to say, come on, let's go for a walk. And then you find yourself refreshed four minutes later, five minutes later, once you get out. I think the combination of sort of the ongoing stressors of all different manner and the physical disconnection that's been happening because of the pandemic just is kind of a double whammy. So if you don't have people in your bubble who can kind of help you with some of this stuff, it gets harder and harder to do on your own. Yeah. I, for myself and helping others and also thinking about our sort of evolutionary neurobiological processes of stress recovery, including in our simpler animal ancestors, three things really stand out. One is just the recognition in at least this moment, you're not dying. You know, and at least this moment, there's a fundamental, when it's true, usually it's true, there's no shark chewing on your leg. There's a, just a basic okayness. It's not great. It totally sucks. But you're basically, you're still okay. Heart's still beating. You're still breathing. Mind's still working. Second is simple pleasure. As you know, pleasure, just a simple thing. You know, a little cup of coffee, look out the window, see something beautiful. I see a telescope over your shoulder. You know, I suspect we have a mutual shared pleasure and just like space and you know, stuff, like whatever, whatever it might be. And then pleasure, you know, a chocolate chip, a little bit of cookie. And third, definitely connection. And if you can't physically or literally connect with other people, just to find a feeling of connection in your heart, you know, your goodwill for them, your sense of camaraderie and friendliness with others, you know, we're all in the foxhole together here. Just right then and there, those three, sense of basic okayness, simple, wholesome pleasure, felt sense of connection. Those tend to, in my experience, be accessible for people who are truly worn to the bone in the moment. Paired with that, Rick, is the ability to do all of those things kind of is tied to your ability to kind of be regulated, right? So once you start to get frayed, your ability to kind of savor the pleasure of that chocolate chip just goes out the window. You just eat another after another one after another one. Instead of just yeah. <laughs> regulating yourself and just be in that moment. And that's, I think, for a lot of people in our culture generally, that's a hard thing. I mean, I think our culture has got us so distracted most of the time. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and forward looking, right? As opposed to allowing moments to wash over you 
And, you know, the irony of this, and you guys, you know this better than anybody, is when you learn how to slow down, you go further. That's such a great line. It's so true. It's one of those things that you can say to folks and they kind of go, oh, yeah, that's what that's wise. <laughs> and they just go, <laughs> well, it is wise. But anyway, wise. yeah, I hear you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Learning how to do it, though, that's it's a lot like a lot of stuff. Yeah. It's practice, you know, it's and I, I actually am, you know, here I am. I'm, I'm a grown up. I've got a pretty good developed cortex. I have good executive functioning. And I still have to have the people that work with me manage how much outside world contact I have. Because I can't manage it myself. I mean, I'm like, sure, I'll do this. I'll do this. So I have to have people that protect me from myself, right? Your auxiliary <laughs> auxiliary executive functions exactly. <laughs> distributed in your system, right. as they say. Yeah. And so I, I, I literally say, don't schedule anything during these big blocks of time. And they help me. I mean, cause, because otherwise I would, knowing better, I would overschedule myself. And for a little while, you can rescue people, but ultimately, you drown too. That's a wonderful line, by the way, Bruce, that ultimately you drown too. Also, to add that on to the slowdown, you'll go further. We've got some good fortune cookies <laughs> coming out of this one already. So. Yeah. <laughs> that could be a revenue source, Forrest. Yeah, we should think about this. You know, these are branded t-shirts. <laughs> no, I think they're honestly fantastic. I don't mean it facetiously. Yeah, I know. We got to go to the merch line, do the whole thing. <laughs> So, okay, so we're talking about some ways that people can reduce the impact of stress or kind of insulate themselves from stress in the moment. What are some of the things that people can do if they're different from what you've already said to limit the kind of more long-term impacts of stress in the moment? Are there practices or ways that somebody can reduce the impact of a stressful experience while they're still in the midst of it? Well, that's a big question. Yeah. You know, and it's sort of been... I don't want to say the Holy Grail, but it's been one of the major areas of investigation for people that have been interested in post-traumatic stress disorder or trying to attenuate or buffer some of the effects of traumatic stress. And one of the things that we know is that when your brain is faced, when your mind is faced with a set of circumstances that just don't fit your understanding of the world, your mind takes you back and tries to fit it in again and again and again, and maybe I try this. And, you, and that's a wonderful thing about our brain is in our mind is our ability to kind of go through a scenario again and again and again. And of course, in doing that, you're kind of revisiting the experience in a way that begins to make it less overwhelming, more familiar, more moderate, and more capable of carrying forward without destructive impact. And so you've probably all the people who are listening have heard about intrusive ideation. Mm, mm -hmm. So if you have something like a bad job review, you might find yourself thinking about it again and again and again and again. And you may take control of that process by going and repeating what the boss said to your coworker. And then you repeat it to your partner. And then you repeat it to a friend. And every time you do, you kind of talk about some part of that in a way where you have control, you kind of present it from one perspective, you get validation and get regulated and reinforced that you're good and that was not wrong and he doesn't understand you. And you literally make something that felt really overwhelming be more and more manageable. And that's kind of the key to trauma treatment is finding some place to put this 
experience where it's no longer interfering with your ability to kind of move forward and function. One of my favorite ways to do this is to actually encourage people to write. You know, if if you journal or if you intentionally write about something that you're struggling with, and it could be poetry, some people turn it into art, some people have a process where they'll go for a walk and think about, you know, whatever the challenge was. When you start to take control of that process, it decreases the pressure of the uncontrollable process of trying to figure out what happened. And so one of the things that we did, for example, with kids that had traumatic events and would be in the hospital is that we'd go and we'd sit with them. We'd go, we want you to just talk about five facts. What's the sequence of these five things that happened? I was in the car. I was going to music lessons. My brother was driving and somebody ran a red light and ran into him. I broke my leg. I came to the hospital. He was dead. You know, I mean, like, yikes. And so what we'd, we'd give them these little cards, and we'd say, here's what we want you to do. Every 20 minutes, we're going to have a little thing that buzzes, and then we want you to pull out that card and just read the first fact, I was in the car, until you feel like it's too much, and then just put it back in your pocket. And what we found was when these kids actually, in a predictable, dosed way, managed, they were the ones that started the process of thinking about it. And they're the ones that stopped the process of thinking about it. That intrusive ideations, overwhelming sort of trauma-related symptoms diminished tremendously over the next three or four weeks. And so again, it's what I encourage people to do is don't be afraid of thinking about it. If you have an intrusive ideation, don't try to push it away. Just go, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to think intentionally about this stuff at the top of the hour. So now you go away, you know, and at the top of the hour, you say, all right, here's, I'm not going to spend any longer than four minutes thinking about this stuff. We talk with people about, listen, this is like you have a huge plate of food in front of you. You got to eat the whole thing. But, you know, it's like man versus food. You don't have to, you don't have to sit and eat the whole thing in half an hour. You just take a bite and you can come back whenever you want, take another bite because it takes a long time to digest this stuff. Yeah. Bruce, I'd love to pursue this in what might seem initially a little bit of a technical way. We have many listeners to this podcast who are themselves healthcare professionals of one kind or another, including many therapists. And also many, many people are involved in DIY treatment effectively, do-it-yourself paths for their own painful life experiences, including traumatic ones. I want to first highlight the dimension of control, because obviously when we're traumatized, we didn't have control over what happened classic language like entrapment and defeat with great pain. So that's kind of the hallmarks, right? So the dimension of control. So I have a two-parter here. First part is, can you you know, tease apart or just sort of acknowledge the role of both helping people increase the sense of control alongside in what, as you know, is called desensitization? And how can a person do this process, let's say, of being in control of re-exploring the traumatic material without re-traumatizing themselves, but instead desensitizing themselves to it. So could you speak to that? Yeah. Part of what you've been studying for 30 years in animal models and in humans is that activating the stress response in one pattern leads to dysfunction. It leads to an overly reactive, sensitized, 
stress response and then all the bad things that can go with that. But activating the stress response, as you are pointing out, Rick, in ways that are predictable and controllable lead to more moderate activations that over time lead to desensitization, tolerance, and resilience. It's hard, it's difficult to kind of make that turn. But the good news is that it's not like you have to be perfect at doing it. Just by starting with a few little things where you don't run from the ideations, you don't run from the event. And anybody who's had any kind of traumatic experience knows that you can't run anyway. You know, I mean, it gets to in your dreams or it'll get, it's, it's coming out. So if you begin to intentionally take control of the way you revisit, whether you think about it, how you talk about it, who you talk about with it, what part of it you talk about, that begins to give you control of it. Right. We're drawing the uncontrolled into a framework of control in a sense. Exactly. Agency, regulation, you're in charge of the process. One of the things that the hardest things to help people appreciate is that, number one, you don't have to be perfect at it. Number two, just the tiniest little bit of success is going to lead to more success. So if you say, all right, wow, that popped into my head, instead of trying to push it back, if you go, okay, let me sit with this pain for a little while, Pretty soon you realize, you know, this is not, like you said before, I'm, this isn't killing me. I'm not dead. It's painful. Basic okayness underneath it all. Yeah. Right. Basic okayness. It's, you know what? I can handle this distress. I don't want to handle a lot of it. I don't want it all the time, but I'm going to sit with this for a little while and then I'm going to put it back and try and do my daily work or whatever. Again, it takes practice and it takes reassurance. The most important piece of reassurance is, to change your brain, you only need moments. Mm. You don't have to sit there for hours. You don't have to sit there even for minutes. That's so hopeful. Literally a moment. A moment where you go, you know what? I'm not afraid of this thought. This isn't going to kill me. Someday when I, this pops into my head, I'm going to be okay. That's all you need. I don't like this thought. It's not my preference, but I'm not afraid of it. It's not the master of me. Exactly. Quick question, as it were offline, you know, outside of directly engaging trauma material, do you find that it helps people to highlight the felt sense, the experience of control, agency, being more like a hammer and less like a nail in other areas of their life to kind of build up that and, and to some sense counteract the learned helplessness that comes from being traumatized and then apply that greater internal trait of being in control, self-efficacy sometimes is called applied to then trauma practice. That's a really important point, because as you know, that one of the most toxic things that can happen from a traumatic set of experiences is that that sense of being helpless generalizes to everything in their life. And so you're absolutely right. Probably the best place to start that process is to take things that are far distant from the traumatic experience. Low-hanging fruit. <laughs> exactly. And reestablish a sense of agency that, oh, you know what? I do have control over stuff like I can take a walk. I mean, I can really control getting up and going to the gym. I can really control when I go to the grocery store, when I don't go to the grocery store. I can control, and little by little, that sense of agency will allow you to be able to do this other form of really, it's harder, right? It's just a, a moment with these painful experiences is really hard for almost anybody. 
Wow, Bruce, that's so clear. And so now I wonder if I could get into the second part here. For example, as you know, Peter Levine, who we've had on the podcast, highlights the aspect of trauma that's a kind of frozen or frustrated or impeded natural coping response. Like naturally you would run away, like animals in the wild, they get away or they fight back or or they're able to draw in protection from other sources. And that's stuck inside the body, that, that impediment. So part of somatic experiencing that Peter has developed, as you know, is about finding appropriate ways to complete the adaptive response, as it were, including in just your imagination or maybe in moving your body in certain ways or saying certain things or drawing in help in other ways. What do you think of that aspect of helping with trauma alongside heightening a sense of control and desensitizing yourself to that traumatic material? All of us who are trying to sort of understand the range of responses to trauma, at one point or another, come up against a set of behaviors and physiological responses that are basically, I don't want to say the direct opposite, but are very different than the classic fight or flight response. And they're equally adaptive, but in a different context. So if an animal, including a human, finds themselves in an inescapable, unavoidably threatening or distressing, painful, or injurious situation, it's much more adaptive for you to shut down than it is to keep trying to fight. And so if you are a young child, for example, a baby, or even a toddler, the fight or flight response that they would give in the face of threat usually would just be a lightning rod for more pain and injury and abuse. So they quickly learn to use dissociation, to shut down. And this kind of robotic, semi-frozen set of adaptations leads to a whole set of maladaptive behaviors later on, which, again, can be addressed in, in somewhat the same way. The problem is a lot of these individuals have such a sensitized dissociative response, and the abuse happened in context of relationships. So that when you try to, as a teacher, as a parent, as a therapist, be relationally close with them, they get into this sort of frozen state, which has at one point, you know, it's a continuum, but along that continuum, there's a place where you will be compliant, but it's a hollow compliance. And the individual will be interacting with you and you'll be suggesting something as this caring therapist, the all-knowing trauma therapist, this is what can help you. And they'll look at you and they'll go, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh. And they walk away and you walk away thinking, wow, I really helped them. But because of that state of being in an inescapable, emotionally threatening situation of intimacy, they literally shut down big parts of their cortex and they don't remember at all what you talked about. So you end up thinking that you got somewhere as the therapist, but you really haven't made any change. And this is one of the most clinically challenging situations is that people who've had that kind of trauma end up being sort of therapeutically stuck. And if you don't understand dissociation, then you're confused. This is where Peter's stuff comes in, where it's really nice, because one of the things that happens when you use somatic approaches 
is that you're able to help somebody regulate in a way that's not using dissociation. And so they're able to be more present and more cognitively or sort of cortically available for the kind of therapeutic work that you want to do. But what do you think about the specific aspect of completing what had been previously a thwarted, natural, biologically rooted coping response? Honestly, I just have to say I don't. Re- I haven't really thought about it that much. See, here's my, and this is sort of the the curse of a developmentalist, is that for me, time always goes forward, and so the concept of completing anything makes me think. And I may be wrong. It's not. Is it, I'm not sure it's necessarily going back. But I always think things go forward, and so when I think about therapy, I never think about going in and undoing stuff. I think about building new mm-hmm. new ways, building new pathways as opposed to undoing an old pathway. Mm-hmm. It's I always imagine sort of a a dirt road from one town to another that you can get there, but it takes forever and it's not very efficient. And if you increase commerce between these two towns, there's going to be a big backup. And <laughs> so therapy is building an interstate freeway between these two towns, you're building something new. Yeah, The old stuff stays there. It's just that you don't use it very often. And unless there's an accident on the freeway, and then you have to use that old tried and true pathway. So that's kind of the way I think about therapy. You're building new things. And I don't say that in any way to undo what Peter does because he does wonderful work. It's just, I, I just don't think about it that way. So for people who have that heavy dissociative response, Bruce, and I think that you're speaking to something here that many people are actively experiencing in the moment while the pandemic is going on. You know, think about all the ways, all the little ways that we've kind of disassociated from our surroundings. And obviously we are literally physically disassociating from them on a daily basis, which I think is a mixed bag. Of course, you do it to protect yourself, but then you think about all the ways in which that moves you out of connection with other people, which is something that you've already named as you know, a key resource for somebody who's having that experience. And we've received a lot of emails from people saying, I feel like I'm in a constant disassociative state. What are some of the things that they can do to work with that or to either be kind to themselves as it's happening, to understand what's going on, or even to build some kind of a resource that helps them I don't know, come more maybe into an experience of themselves at the very least, if they can't come into an experience of their surroundings, which are understandably not entirely safe. Well, I think, Forrest, you just, you know, one of the things you said that's so important is that the experiences that people are reporting to you are basically completely predictable. And so people really need to be forgiving of themselves. You can't take anybody and have them on a Zoom meeting for 25 minutes and not expect somebody to dissociate. It's a normal coping mechanism when you're in an inescapable, unavoidably sort of distressing situation. And we all have been on these meetings where you're like, oh my God, just shoot me. (laughs) You're not referring to this meeting, are you? (laughs) No, 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 not at all. But I think, you you know, the odd thing about a Zoom meeting is that if you're sitting in a class or a regular meeting, you don't have to be face-to-face with the people you're talking with all the time. You're able to kind of like watch somebody, see how they're responding to the conversation, 
glance over at the person presenting, look down at your paper, make a note. But in Zoom, there's this weird thing where everybody's kind of like, you got to be there. And there's a disruption of the normal synchrony that would happen in a face-to-face interaction. So there's even these millisecond pauses are just enough for our brain to go, that's not quite right. That's not quite right. And so it's exhausting. Mm -hmm. And so everybody's been tuning out. We've been basically, the interesting thing is the difference between a successful child in school and an unsuccessful child is that the successful child learns how to dissociate while they're feigning attention. (laughs) The unsuccessful child tunes out and dissociates and looks out the window. Yeah, They get in trouble. The the person who learns how to dissociate (laughs) while they pretend they're looking at the teacher they never get in trouble. That's a wild observation, Bruce, by the way. That, that just like totally shook how I look at a classroom now. Jeez. <laughs> well, but th- next time you're in a meeting, I'm telling you, there are people that are able to just sort of, they almost sleep. Yep. But they kind of look like they're in the meeting. And you know that they're like off in Jamaica in their head. No, you're, you're, you're right on. You, you could not be more right on. And, yeah. and they've learned these little strategies like, actually, Sarah Cooper, you know, that comedian, she wrote a book about this. She wrote a book about like nine ways to look smart in a meeting, <laughs> which is basic. You got to read it. It, it. it talks about these skills that you can actually be successful in a corporate environment if you learn how to sort of ask one strategic question after sleeping through 90% of the meeting. I just want to highlight what you said there about, I'm going to put it a certain way, the accumulating effect of these disruptions of micro attunements. And as you well know, there's a lot of research on the ways in which infants and toddlers and young kids interact with, let's say, caregivers. That's an extraordinary dance of attunement and rapport, tenth of a second by tenth of a second by tenth of a second, if not even on an even more granular time scale. So we're used to that. It's normal. And yet, as you say, as we meet with each other on Zoom, where there are these, you know, very brief, you know, 10 millisecond delays, it disrupts that sense of rapport. And the gradual adding of that is like subtle grit in the gears of rapport again and again and again, hundreds of times a day. And that does tend to wear on people and just to name it, just to acknowledge it. And I think that that's a great way of thinking about it. It, It's just sort of like grit in the gears. That's exactly what it's like. Yeah. Because you can't really put your finger on it. You're like, but man, it doesn't have that same, not always, but rarely has that same connection of warmth. Like if we were in the same room, this would be even a better mm, call, mm-hmm. right? I mean, it'd be more, more, it'd be more fun. Yeah. Not that it's in, not, there's anything wrong with this. I hear you. I hear you. <laughs> okay. So here's my deep dive. You've, you know, been in this territory for a long time. I found certain passages in your book. Just frankly, I just skimmed right over them because I knew they would be so painful for me to read when you were describing the lives of these real people. And if it's that painful for me to read your account, how horrible it must have been for them, these kids. And you you live in that world a lot. And I just kind of wonder how it works on you and how you work with it and how it's been for you and what maybe you've learned from that. We kind of talked about it earlier, that one of the things I learned early in my life was that these moments of fear, they pass. and I just became comfortable. I don't want to say comfortable, but I became less afraid of pain, you know, emotional pain. 
And it's like anything else that just because I had some of that capability, I would find myself in these certain situations. And then the more you have experience with not being annihilated and actually being able to come out of an interaction like that or come out of an experience like that, where you learn something and you can be a little bit of an anchor for somebody when they're struggling. There are some elements of positive reinforcement to helping somebody. And so I've just been very fortunate to have people who've been generous enough to share their darkest moments. And I've been lucky enough to be with them clinically over time and see them get better. So when you have experiences where there's success, it just makes you more willing to kind of go back and try that again. And we, we're still learning. I mean, I had a thing yesterday where somebody had been working with for many years, a long time ago, he ended up being adopted by a grandparent. We thought it was a great success. And yesterday found out that the grandmother had unadopted him and put him back in the system and he's disappeared. So, you know, the process of trying to find him and engage him and get him back into a safe environment. You know, that's like, that was a miserable day. But it was interesting because there were so many people that were just kind of unraveled by that and paralyzed. And I was like, this is terrible, but... Control, in effect. Yeah. Influence. Where you do have power. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And I think the people that ended up making the difference had the power. I was just like a cheerleader. You know, I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. And I think you can do this and that's probably where to go. And But that's what it is, I think, Rick, more than anything. It's just, it's just experience. And that's coupled with the fact that I'm in this very fortunate position that I don't have to do clinical work all day, every day. I just, I wouldn't be able to do it because it is really tough. How is it for you and how is it for the people you try to help when things can't get better? the losses, let's say, irreversible, or the the fate, in a sense, is the person is actually doomed. And I, I recall a situation that you've shared with us before about these three siblings you worked with who had an incurable illness. And, you know, and if you're willing to talk about that here, I'd love to hear a little bit about that. Yeah. You know, when I was first in undergraduate, I worked, I volunteered at Stanford Children's Hospital, and they had a unit with these genetic disorders that were quite unusual. And there was a sibship group of three brothers, all of whom had a rare genetic disorder where they're basically they were going to die when they're 14, 15 years old. Mm -hmm. And I got to know the two younger brothers pretty well. And at that time, they were like, I think the youngest was six, and then the oldest was 10, and their older brother had just died. But their worldview about their experience and and the fact that they were so lucky, you know, and they relate this to me, you know, that they were so lucky that they were at this amazing place and they, you know, look at how beautiful it is outside. And and this is the greatest toy. And they, they were like, it was, I mean, they had joy about their moment to moment lives that was just so refreshing. And just their perspective on life was something that was, I'll never forget. I mean, and it had profound impact on me to this day. I'm like tearing up. There's part of me that knows that we all die, but there's also a part of me, and I think every, not everybody, but most people that kind of, understands that in a weird abstraction so that 
we're able to kind of accept the mundane inertia of life as opposed to celebrate these moments of joy like these little boys did. I've been lucky to, every once in a while, when I get realized that I've just been stuck in this inertial mediocrity, I'll remember those boys. Or, or I'll rem- there are other examples, too, of people that have just had joy and helped me understand that life's just this gift. One of the things that I do want to kind of close by asking you here is something that I've been reflecting on myself as the pandemic has been going on is just like the long tail of experiences that we have in childhood, which we've, we've talked about a lot but particularly how these experiences that we're having right now that are disassociative or separating from other people or however you want to put it, might be impacting people differently based on their developmental experience. Like if you're a person who grew up experiencing significant adverse conditions, maybe they had to do with neglect or abandonment, or they were exposed to situations that felt like physically threatening, body harm of some kind or another, now we're in a pandemic and there's a level of threat that like surrounds us all the time and people are being moved into isolation. It feels like a real recipe for essentially re-traumatizing people. And I just wanted to ask you, based off of all of that, in your experience of the present moment, do you think that people who went through those experiences in the past are more at risk today and might have been going through a very different experience than you know somebody like me or somebody like Rick? I have a couple of thoughts about that, Forrest. One is that, first of all, I think you're absolutely right. I think that if you have a history of developmental adversity, the likelihood is that being in this situation is going to just be more overwhelming and more challenging just because you're more reactive to any stressor. But there's a couple of other things that I think are really important to think about here. When all is said and done, I think what you're going to find is the people who were most vulnerable to getting sick from the virus have a higher probability of having developmental adversity. That's one of the things I think is going to come out. The second thing I think that's really interesting for me was that there are many, many kids who struggled mightily in school. And for many of those kids, this break from physical, sort of from intimacy, where they blow up when you get too close to them, This has been kind of a nice reprieve. You know, they're not teased anymore. They're not marginalized anymore. They're not getting nonstop negative feedback about how can you, you know, I I just told you that. Why did you? So I think that many of those kids are experiencing this in a different way than than other kids. I do think it's going to be kind of a mixed bag, but there are so many lessons to be learned from this experience. And I think, as you said before, there's going to be a long tail to this. I think that there, for years to come, there will be people who will have their current functioning impacted by this last year in ways that they may not be aware of. Yeah, and it's a reminder to do what you can to be kind to yourself and sensitive to our to our own sensitivity. Well, maybe to kind of move to an end here, thinking about what you said earlier, Bruce, about how you look forward, you know, as a developmentalist, a progressivist, as it were, we will turn a corner at some point. Predictions vary, but maybe by the summer of 2021 in America, maybe later, but some kind of corner will gradually get turned. And if you were to express a wish for those future beings six months from now, maybe maybe 12 months from now, a little bit like I think of as a football guy, throwing a pass, a long bomb as it were, a long pass to be caught six months from now by our future selves, what would be one thing in particular maybe you would wish for us all 
to feel or know or carry in our hearts, you know, as we come around the corner of this eventually. What I hope really happens with that sort of Hail Mary pass you're talking about is that we all remember what it felt like to be in this experience. Because it will help us be able to, to maintain an empathic bond with the people that we work with who struggle. You know, we're, we're all privileged to get out of this. I mean, I have a job. You know, so many people are going to get back towards their normal. But there are huge percentages of our population that always have lived with this uncertainty and this sort of level of chronic stress. Mm. And I just hope that we remember what it feels like. I, I hope the congressmen, for example, remember what it feels like to have to go through a metal detector to go to Congress. That's what has to happen to all the kids in the country to go to school because they didn't pass gun control. Let's remember these experiences and see if we can do something about it to make our world better. Thank you. It's a great wish, Bruce. Thank you so much for it. And thank you for doing this again today. Really, we truly appreciate it. It was awesome. My pleasure. You guys do great work and I'm just happy to be part of this. And we'll do it again sometime. Yeah, we'll have our we'll have our fourth third conversation or our third it's fourth conversation. <laughs> awesome. So today we had the pleasure of speaking with truly one of my favorite guests, Dr. Bruce Perry. One of the things that I really love about Bruce is his ability to simplify and put in very clear and understandable terms concepts that are often really complicated and kind of challenging to access for most people. But he just has this unique ability to reframe things in a manner that feels, at least for me, very accessible. We began our conversation by talking about how stress accumulates over time and how when we're less stressed, that means that we're less reactive. But as we get worn down, particularly by challenging circumstances like the ones that many people find themselves in these days, it becomes harder and harder to be resilient and to regulate ourselves. We then went on to talking about what people can do to feel more resourced in the moment, even as they're going through a really challenging experience. One of the things that Bruce really emphasized throughout the conversation was, hey, a personal favorite of mine, agency. Focusing on what you can control and trying to unplug as best as you can from what you can't. He also mentioned how important it is to find ways to connect to other people, particularly given that we're in a time where connection isn't happening naturally and kind of randomly as much in the flow of our everyday lives, and we really need to kind of go out of our way to search it out. Rick also added the importance of savoring the pleasures that are still real, even during the course of a challenging life. I went on to ask Bruce a question about limiting the long-term impacts of traumatic experiences, and you know, he really emphasized how this is the holy grail, for lack of a better way of putting it, of trauma work. And it's a challenging question to answer simply. One of the things that Bruce said that really stuck with me was the idea of finding a place to put the traumatic experience that you've gone through, where it's no longer interfering with your ability to function on a daily basis. Some of the methods that Bruce encouraged were journaling, poetry, art, even just going for a walk and thinking about it sort of lightly. And what's nice about all of these things is that they give us a means to express out the experience that we're going through and a way to feel like we're really taking control of that process. Rick and Bruce then had a conversation about how we can increase our sense of control and get involved with the process of helping ourselves heal without at the same time 
just re-traumatizing ourselves by reliving a negative experience over and over again. Another great kind of fortune cookie from Bruce was the sentence, to change your brain, you only need moments. A moment where you go, you know, I'm not afraid of this thought. You might not enjoy the thought, but you're not afraid of it anymore. And I just thought that that was a really hopeful reflection, this idea that moment by moment, step by step, we really can unravel from some of the challenging experiences that we've had throughout our lives. We then spent a good chunk of the podcast talking about disassociation and how disassociation can be one of the most challenging parts of dealing with this whole process. It's very easy for us to have a conversation with a friend or, geez, if you're a therapist, a conversation with a client where you feel like you've really shared some useful tools and we've made some good progress together, but the person just can't retain it because they were dissociating the entire time. And that state of dissociation is really one that we all kind of find ourselves in during quarantine. We've really been made more separate from the world around us and maybe to an extent we're dissociating from ourselves as well to protect our core during this really challenging time. A reminder that I found helpful through the conversation was just to be kind to ourselves, to understand that this is a natural coping response and your body and mind are kind of automatically doing what they need to do to keep you as safe as possible. This is not going to be the easiest time for everyone to be their best self or to achieve out in the world or however we want to put it. It's going to be hard to do that right now. And sometimes that's really okay. Sometimes it's okay to have a day where you don't get much done, where you check out during the meetings, and where you just kind of take it easy. That's really all right. Turning towards some of the more developmental content, Bruce had another sentence. He had many sentences during this conversation that I'm going to remember, but this was another one that really stuck with me. So to quote it, the difference between a successful child in school and an unsuccessful child is that the successful child learns how to dissociate while they're feigning attention. The unsuccessful child dissociates and looks out the window and they get in trouble. And that sentence just really changed how I'm going to think about our educational system, childhood development, and honestly, the interactions I have with people on Zoom, how Bruce referred to that kind of blank, vacant stare that people get on Zoom where they're just kind of looking into the camera because they know that they're supposed to, but they're really somewhere else. And that's another one of the things that we're really fighting right now how to stay present during incredibly artificial circumstances. Then finally, we closed the conversation by talking about essentially self-care during challenging times. And Bruce gave a number of really heartfelt reflections from his personal history of some of the things that he's gone through and some of the situations that he's borne witness to. So that's it for today's conversation with Dr. Bruce Perry. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to it through the platform of your choice and maybe even leave a rating and a positive review. It really does help us out. Also, if you'd like to support the podcast in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. We're at patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And if you want to, you can follow us on social media. We're at beingwellpodcast on Instagram, and Rick and I both have our own independent Instagram accounts. So again, thanks so much for supporting the podcast, and we'll talk to you soon. 